All right. Uh, one other sort of housekeeping matter. So after tonight, we're going to be taking a, just a couple of week break from Second Kings. If you haven't noticed it, there is a, uh, a question box that is out in the foyer. And we put it out there just to make sure that if we have folks in our church family who have some sort of pressing um, theological or biblical question that they're struggling with, we want to make sure that we do our best uh, to answer those questions. And so, um, and just so you know, that question box is out there so that if you have some sort of uh, question, maybe in your own personal Bible study time, there's something that comes up in a sermon, there's something that comes up in a Sunday school lesson, you're, you're talking to a, a friend at work and they raise some question about the Bible and you'd like just some help thinking through it, you can write that question down on a sheet of paper, you can drop it in that box in the foyer. And what we do is every four or five months, I'll get the questions that are in that box and we'll take a Sunday night or a couple Sunday nights and we'll work through the questions. And so we have had, um, there were nine questions that were in the box from, from four or five months ago. So over the next two weeks, maybe the next three weeks, we'll work through those questions. Okay, so we have all the questions we're going to be doing now. But if you have something else that comes up, feel free. No, it's not a... Um, it's not a, a stump the pastor question box. It's not to see if you can ask the hardest question you can think of. It's if you have a genuine question, something that you're trying to work through, you are welcome to put it in there. Okay, so we're going to take the next couple of weeks to do that. Now tonight, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 12. And let me just quickly remind you of um, sort of the overarching storyline that's going on. First and 2 Kings, you'll remember, really are one book. It's been divided into two books in our Bible, but it stretches from the death of King David, so that's around... 1,970 BC. It goes from the death of David all the way to the fall of the southern kingdom. That's around 586 BC. So together, First and Second Kings are covering somewhere around 400 years time frames. And they're in, they're in the section of books in your Bible that are known as historical books. Okay, these are history books, but they're not history books the way you're used to thinking about history books. So if you were to get a, a history book about the Roman Empire, if you were to get a history book detailing the different emperors of the Roman Empire, it's going to give you a lot of facts about uh, when each emperor reigned and the wars that they fought and the territory that they gained and what the economy was like and the laws that were passed. That's not the way First and Second Kings is set up. Now you get information like that, usually you get it more in passing. But more than the author is trying to help us understand the history of Israel, he's wanting us to understand the God of Israel. So he's giving us these stories, but he's giving us these historical stories in a way so that we'll, we'll be able to see God's hand at work in all of this. So we'll see who God is, and we'll see especially how God works in and relates to his people through all of this. And, um, and if you've been here during these studies, these are some of the most fascinating stories in the Old Testament to me. They are edge of your seat, exciting kinds of stories. And for the last couple chapters, there have been two pressing questions that have been hanging in the air that needed to be answered. So the question that's been hanging in the air in the northern kingdom, remember Israel split into two, and the question hanging in the air in the northern kingdom is, is God going to keep the promise he made about the family of Ahab? Because Ahab had sat on the throne of the northern kingdom and God had announced judgment. God had said that he was going to judge Ahab and his family and the way he was going to judge them is he was going to ultimately eliminate the whole line of Ahab in the north. Okay, but for years it ticked on and nothing happened. Nothing changed. Ahab died and Ahab's sons then sat on the throne. And Ahab's family was growing larger and larger. And so the question ringing in the, the northern kingdom is, is God going to keep his promise? Or does God's promise mean nothing? 
And then we finally came to the story in 2 Kings, I think it was chapter 10, where God raises up this man named Jehu, and God uses Jehu to wipe out, to massacre the whole family of Ahab. And it's letting us know not one of God's promises will fall to the ground. God keeps his word. That's the promise in the northern kingdom. Well, the promise hanging in the air in the southern kingdom was God had promised that he was going to preserve the line of David. But when we came to chapter 11 last week, that promise seemed like it was highly in doubt because a woman named Athaliah came to the throne and she made it her mission to wipe out the whole family line of David and she was very successful at it. She starts killing all of the great, great, great grandchildren of David. They're all murdered except one. One little baby boy named Joash is protected from Queen Athaliah and it is, it's absolutely remarkable to think about because that means that all the promises that God had made from way back in Genesis are hanging on this one baby boy. Because think back to Genesis chapter 3 when God made the promise. He's going to raise up a seed of Eve who's going to crush the head of Satan. So there's the promise, this one's coming. Well, then that gets narrowed down. And we're told that that coming Savior is going to come through the line of Abraham. And then that promise gets narrowed down. And we're told it's not only going to be through the line of Eve and through the line of Abraham, he's going to come through the line of David. But then we came to 2 Kings 11, and the line of David was almost completely eliminated, save one little baby boy. And all of God's promises are hanging on the survival of this one baby. And God saves him, and God preserves the line of David. God keeps his promise to David. And then uh, this boy is kept hiding out in the temple for seven, six years until he's seven years old. And at the age of seven, he's finally presented before the nation as their true king. Queen Athaliah is killed. Joash is crowned as the king of Israel. That's the story we looked at last week. So two promises that seem to be in jeopardy. And in the last two chapters, both promises have been fulfilled. And last week, um, the chapter ended really on a high note because Joash is crowned king. And do you remember what happens after he's crowned king? Not only is the evil queen Athaliah executed, not only is the temple to Baal in Jerusalem destroyed, not only is the priest of Baal in Jerusalem executed, but we're told that once Jehu is crowned, or excuse me, once Joash is crowned as king, the people rejoiced and the city was quiet. So it ends with the people of God rejoicing because the true king's on the throne. And it ends with the people of God knowing real peace because the true king is on the throne. So chapter 11 ends and everything looks great. And they all lived happily ever after. Well, if you've been keeping up at all with First and Second Kings, you know that none of these stories all end happily ever after. So Joash's story starts really good. He's the baby that's protected, the youngest king in Israel. He becomes king when he's seven years old. He's going to do some wonderful things early in his career. But, but Joash's reign is going to end in absolute tragedy. So that's where we're moving toward tonight. So if your Bible is open, I hope it is, we're in 2 Kings. And I laid my glasses down. Here we go. All right, 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here's how the story begins. It says, In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. Je Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, 
the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now pause and let me just make a couple points about those opening verses. First, you'll notice that his name in verse 1 is spelled Jehoash. Do you see that? But there are other places where it's spelled Joash. That's just a variant, a variant spelling of the same name. And you'll often get variant spellings of the same name when there, are, when there are two people who shared the name. So what you're going to see is a little bit later, there's going to be a king in the northern kingdom who has this exact same name. And so sometimes they'll do a slight adjustment to one of the king's names just to help us keep them separate. So it's, it's named Jehoash here. Later in the story, it's going to be Joash. I'm going to call him Joash just because Joash, I guess, is easier to say than Jehoash. So that's the name. Okay. Joash ends up sitting on the throne of Israel for how long? For 40 years. So he's seven years old when he becomes king. He reigns as king until he is 47. And you got to get that a 40-year reign is purely a mark of God's mercy toward the southern kingdom. Because the 10 or 12 years before this has been constant turmoil. It's been kings assassinated. It's been usurpers claiming the throne. It's been the royal family being killed. It's been one terrible thing after the next. And so the fact that God gives them 40 years of the same king sitting on the throne is purely an act of the mercy of God to his people. He's giving them some stability. And did you notice the other name that was mentioned here? Verse 2. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Those of you who were here last week, do you remember, remember who Jehoiada the priest is? So when this baby boy, his life was being threatened, there was a godly couple who God raised up to protect baby Joash. The father's name is right here, that's Jehoiada, he was a priest. And then anybody remember the, the mother's name? The mother's name was Jehoshabah. And, and this is one of the wonderful kind of unknown couples of the Old Testament. God uses them to save the last baby in the line of David. So Jehoshaphat, the wife, whisked this baby away when the executioners are roaming through the palace. And she hides him and his nurse in one of the side bedrooms. And then once things calm down, she takes them out of the palace and ushers them into the temple. And that's where Joash, this baby, spends the next six years of his life. So from the age of one to the age of seven, he is raised in the temple. And Jehoshaphat's husband is this priest, Jehoiada. And so they basically become King Joash's foster parents. They care for him, they nurture him, they raise him. As, as Joash gets older, Jehoiada becomes his spiritual advisor and his helper and his counselor. And he's going to end up playing a really important role in the story tonight too. Okay, so that's Jehoiada and, and Joash, this godly couple. But there was something said about Joash there in verse 2 I want you to think about. It said, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Well, that should make you raise an eyebrow a little bit. What, what question does that immediately raise for you? Okay, so he does right all the days of Jehoiada, but the question is going to be, why does it say that? So what exactly happens after the days of Jehoiada? What happens with King Joash once his spiritual advisor, Jehoiada, isn't on the scene anymore? Now we're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more later on. But the story of Joash is really going to be a a resounding warning. Listen now, it's going to be a resounding warning about living your life as a spiritual dependent. 
It's going to be a resounding warning about the danger of living your life riding on someone else's spiritual coattails. Where you feel confident in your faith because your dad's confident in his faith. You feel secure where you are because your husband's a mature Christian. You feel comfortable because you're comfortable in the faith of your pastor. And you, you just share whatever his convictions are. Whatever your mom's commitments are, those are your commitments. Whatever their conscience is, is what your conscience is. It's almost like a, think of a leech that attaches on to a host. What happens when the host dies if that leech just stays there? Well, the, the leech dies too, right? That, that's going to be the story of Joash. This is a man who does not have his own conscience. He does not have his own moral convictions. He does not have his own commitment to God. His entire faith is secondhand faith. Okay, so this is, every person in here needs to get this warning. Okay, so it's, it's so easy in the spiritual life. You might have some person in your life who made, has made such a great spiritual impact on you. They have helped you grow in the faith. They have kind of helped self, set up some um, con conscience issues and some convictional issues for you. It's wonderful to have people like that. We'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute. It is wonderful to have people like that. But listen, it has to be your faith. It has to become your convictions. It has to be your conscience. If you live your whole life tethered to someone else's faith, what happens when that person is gone? What happens when that godly parent dies? What happens when that spiritually mature spouse goes through a dry season? What happens when that pastor leaves? What happens when that mentor moves somewhere else? What happens to your faith when that person your faith is built on isn't there anymore? And what happens with Joash is his faith is not built on the Lord. His faith is built on Jehoiada's faith. And so when Jehoiada isn't on the scenes anymore, Joash's faith is going to completely collapse. And that's why his, his story ends up being such a tragic story. Okay, one other thing in those first three verses I want you to notice. So there was a time period where he did good, but according to verse three, even during that time period when he did good, there was still something he failed to do. What did he fail to do? He failed to take down the high places. Now, do you remember what the high places were? When... When the children of Israel first moved into the promised land, there were these people groups that were there before them, the Canaanites. And the Canaanites built their own places of worship. So what they would do is they would go up on, on elevated ground. They would find some hill on their property, and they would build their own personal shrine. And, and usually in this shrine, they would have an altar. They would have some sort of sacred object. Maybe they would bring in a, a pole to Asherah, or they would have a sacred stone. They would have a sacred object, an altar, and then they would have their shrine. Well, when the Israelites came in and the Canaanites were driven out, the temptation to Israel was just keep using those shrines. Because remember now, when Israel first got there, there was no temple built yet. And even after the temple was built, the temple was in Jerusalem. Well, what if you live 50 miles away from Jerusalem? It's not easy getting to Jerusalem. Well, if you were apportioned a piece of land that had a hill on your land where there was already a shrine, the temptation was, well, I don't need to go to Jerusalem. I'll just use my own shrine. There's already a shrine built on the high place. I'll just turn that into a place where I can worship Yahweh. But God had warned them not to do that. I'll read you just one example of that. Listen to Deuteronomy. Maybe I'll read you from Deuteronomy. Here we go. Deuteronomy 12. 
You shall utter, utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their God and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So what was God's prohibition? God would not allow them to blend together the worship of the true God with the worship of these idols. They weren't allowed to worship Yahweh in these places that had been committed to worshiping false gods. God commanded that, but Israel consistently ignored that. It was just so convenient. We have our own worship site. Why would we go anywhere else? And so, in fact, what you'll find is, of all the kings that came to the throne of Judah, only two kings even tried to do anything about the high places. There were lots of good kings, but most of them just decided that this was not a hill worth dying on. That the only two kings who did anything were uh, Josiah and I think Hezekiah. But only two kings actually tried to do anything about the high places. The rest of the kings just ignored them. And I'm, I'm pointing that out just to say, so even in the time when Joash was doing good, he still only did good in half measures. He only did good as long as it wasn't, wasn't costing him anything. Okay, but what good did he do? Well, look at the next section. Pick up in verse 4. 2 Kings 12, beginning in verse 4. Here's what he did that was good. And Jehoash said to the priest, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple, wherever any dilapidation is found. Okay, now pause for a minute. If you've been here for this whole study of First and Second Kings, think back to the early chapters of First Kings, where we get chapter after chapter after chapter just describing the construction of the temple. Building the temple was such a central event to what God was doing in Israel. That's where God would meet with his people. It's where God's presence would be with his people. And everything about the temple was designed to just make your jaw drop when you saw it. So they imported lumber. They brought in cedar trees from Lebanon. And they, they actually cut all the stone at the quarry to make sure there would be no chisels and no hammers heard on site. And the temple wasn't just a utilitarian building. It was artistic. They had engravings and carvings and everything is overlaid in gold and decorative curtains. I mean, the whole thing is designed to leave you standing in awe. Okay, but by the time we come to this point in the story, the temple is over 120 years old. What happens to buildings over time? Uh, this sanctuary, it was built in the late 80s. It's around 35 years old. And just in the time I've been here, we have had to replace the flooring, and we've had to replace the roof. We've had leaks around the steeple, and we've had to redo the stage, and we've had to redo the foyer, and we had a, a mold issue that we had to bring in a special group and put in a dehumidifier and take the cross thing down off the front, and it's constant work because buildings just naturally wear out well if that happens with a 35 year old building what do you think is the condition of the temple at this point that has been in existence for 120 years 
Well, by this point, there's lots and lots of damage that needs to be repaired in the temple. Lots of things that need to be done. So this once glorious building is now pretty severely dilapidated. And here's something to add to that. Remember now, when Queen Athaliah was on the throne of the southern kingdom, was she a worshiper of Yahweh? No, she worshiped Baal. In fact, she didn't just worship Baal. She built a temple to Baal. Where did she get the supplies for building her temple for Baal? Listen to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 24, verse 7. For the sons of Athaliah, that's probably her followers, the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. What had Queen Athaliah done with the temple when she was on the throne? She'd ransacked it. She'd had her followers go into the temple and things that had been dedicated to God, which was the whole temple, anything they could take out of the temple that they could use in the temple of Baal, they stripped it away. So not only do you have 120 years of deferred maintenance in the temple, you also have a temple that has been ransacked by the worshipers of Baal. So by the time Joash gets there, the temple is in severe disrepair, and he wants to do something about it. Now, think in, think in your mind, why would Joash care so much about the temple? I know, what's that? That's where he was raised. From the age of one to the age of seven, he had never seen the light of day. They were so afraid that if any of Queen Athaliah's people found him, they'd kill him. So for six years of his life, he had been raised in the temple. So imagine a little boy who spends six years stuck in the temple. Do you think he had explored every nook and cranny of that place? He knew every place where the roof was leaking. He knew every board that was rotted. He knew every curtain that was beginning to come unraveled. He knew every problem because he had seen it for firsthand. Probably nobody knew how bad the temple, what bad shape it was in, better than Joash knew. And he wants to make it right. And so what he does is he calls in all of the priests and he gives them their marching orders. So the way it would work in the temple is there were all kinds of different offerings that you would give. You would give offerings for a hundred different things. So what he does is he earmarks three particular offerings. It says it in the text.